Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. The United States Senate quietly voted to sweep two decades of policy off the stage yesterday. Twenty years after the United States invaded Iraq, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it's time to repeal the authorization for the use of military force that launched the war. The Iraq war has long been over. These authorizations for the use of force against Iraq are no longer necessary for our security. Make no mistake, this vote repealing the Iraq war powers is one for the history books. The American people, as we know, are tired of endless wars in the Middle East. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The American people are tired of endless war in the Middle East. Imagine, then, how the people of the Middle East might feel, specifically the Iraqi people. More than a quarter million Iraqi civilians have been killed by direct violence since the invasion. That number is likely an undercount, given the impossibility of recording an accurate death toll due to the invasion itself, sectarian violence, insurgency, and civil war that have ravaged Iraq in the past two decades. In fact, it was 20 years ago this month, March 20, 2003, that the United States unleashed Operation Iraqi Freedom with the so-called shock and awe bombing of Baghdad. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by F-117 stealth bombers. This is what it looked and sounded like in Baghdad. That's actually what it looked and sounded like on living room television screens in the United States, safely filtered through the comforting distance, entertaining production values, and sanitized Pentagon-approved footage. But let's change our POV for a moment, shall we? Let's pick up the camera and swing it over to a building in Baghdad, to a residence, to a room where an Iraqi man is on the receiving end of the American bombing campaign. What do his eyes see on that night? And on the thousands of nights since? What have the past 20 years of war in Iraq looked like through Iraqi eyes? Gaith Abdul Ahad was deep into the night when the bombs started landing in Baghdad, and he was there. And Gaith, what did you see on that night? Well, when the bombing started falling, and, and my skin is now really crawling when I heard the bombing sounds, because it really brought me to that night. I, I decided to uh, to make my bed on the floor uh, away from the window, and I woke up, I think it was one or two, I don't remember the time properly, but, but the house was shaking. And the first thought that comes to your mind, because we Iraqis have seen the bombing. We, my first bombing happened when I was five during the Iran-Iraq war, 1991. And the first thought is, here we go again. This is yet another war. The city will be bombed again to oblivion. Mm. 
Well, Gaith is an award-winning journalist, and he's just published a new book titled A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. And we have an excerpt of it at On Point Radio. And Gaith, I have to say, the book is spectacular, and I feel like it's an absolutely necessary addition to um, the world's understanding, but particularly America's understanding of the past 20 years of American decision-making. Uh, in Iraq. So so tell me a little bit more about when when you first found out that that first night, those first set of bombing campaigns that the United States launched on Baghdad was called, you know, by Donald Rumsfeld and others as the shock and awe campaign. What did that language say to you? It says to me how little regard you have to the people that you're shocking and I mean it wasn't the, the regime that being shocked and out yes maybe it wasn't the, the security forces or the soldiers it was also the civilians I mean I was a young man but imagine the families the children people who the fathers and the mothers who had to worry about their children and what do they feel and the screams and the cries I would wake up every morning and, and cycle through the city and sometimes take pictures stupidly just to document from an architectural point of view the destruction that was taking place in the city. But it was it was a city that, I don't know how to describe it, empty street, smoke rising, the few people who dare to go out to buy bread or do some shopping. It was, and again, I would like to emphasize this is a city that was being bombed for the second or third, sometimes fourth time by the Americans. Because remember, in the 1998, we were bombed again. So that feeling of a repetitive destruction of your own city right in front of your eyes. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because you're absolutely right. I mean, as you just said, you've lived almost your entire life in an Iraq that has been besieged by some kind of war or conflict or sanctions, you know, kind of an economic war. What was Baghdad like? Um, you know, tell, me, tell me more about what Baghdad was like in, in those days right before the U.S. invasion began. So right before the invasion, we have to remember that Baghdad was a, was a broken city. Baghdad was, was coming out of 13 years of sanctions. I mean, the sanctions were still going on. And the sanctions that followed the 1990 war really broke the Iraqi society, really turned a middle-class society, secular some, some, somehow, into a broken, uh, corrupt society. When the teacher's salary was $2, corruption became a way of life. So the poverty that, that increased phenomenally in Iraq, uh, children's, uh, you know, Dying in hospitals, schools. I mean, I remember in, in architecture school, we were scavenging for papers. So it, it turned us into a nation of hustlers. And 13 years later, we're told that here is the war happening again. I would argue that no Iraqi wanted Saddam. I mean, we were all happy to see the back of Saddam. But did we really want war? I mean, did anyone come to us and say, hey, Iraqis, do you really want to be bombed again to get rid of Saddam? So so it was anxiety. It was fear. But most of it was, what's next? I mean, this is a regime that's been planting, planning for this day for 30 years, for more than three decades. 
And how will the regime survive? How will regime, will we see street fighting? I mean, that was one of my main anxieties, is to see tanks rolling in the streets and, and, and people resisting them and fighting against them. And of course, that didn't happen in the initial uh, war. For I never thought that the regime would collapse in two or three weeks. But that street fighting, the turning our cities into urban warfare, that came later as a consequence mm-hmm. of the war, of course. You know, you just tucked in a little mention of architecture school, um, and and I have to say your uh, your background as as an architect uh, led you to include some very beautiful and very haunting illustrations that you did. Um, they're in the book of uh, of cities ar- uh, around Iraq that you you visited, of people that you've met over the past twenty years. I mean, they're 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 quite moving. Can you just quickly tell me you um, why you felt it was important to include these visual representations of the Iraq that you knew over the past 20 years in the book? So I am the ultimate accidental journalist. I mean, I was in my house. I was an architect in my house. And then suddenly you see American tanks down in the streets or these amphibious armored vehicles and Marines. And and, and that, you're suddenly sucked into a news story, into one of the biggest news stories in, in the world that continues to unravel. I stood, I watched the statue falling, I went next day to Saddam's palace, I became a journalist after that. But part of me that was an architect that I left that part on the 9th of April 2003, that part still kind of with me, and I always doodle in my notebooks, and I always, you know, it's a great way to uh, to miss deadlines. So, so that kind of sketching, I thought, would illustrate much better than pictures the events of the last 20 years. I mean, in a way, pictures capture a single moment. I thought a sketch would kind of give it more depth in a way. Mm. Well, we're going to get to the, the toppling of the Saddam statue in a few minutes, uh, Haith. But uh, I wanted to ask you, you also in the book describe very, uh, in, de- in, in quite a bit of detail, the room you were in um, uh, when the invasion, when the U.S. invasion began. It, it, you describe it as the Red Room and um, all of the uh, supplies that you were stockpiling along, uh, just like other Iraqis were in preparation for who knows what was going to happen. Can you just tell us a little bit about, like, literally your physical environment in those early days? I mean, where Iraq is a very good at stockpiling. The moment we see something's happening, we know exactly what to do, and that's get rice, beans, some olive oil, whatever, tuna cans. So weeks before the invasion, when, when it became clear uh, that the Americans were actually going to bomb Baghdad, that the whole charade of weapons of mass destruction and specters for weapons of mass destruction is not going to work. You start stockpiling. You buy some kerosene, you buy all these things, and you prepare yourself. Because again, 1991 was a perfect example of what will happen when the whole infrastructure is destroyed, electricity, water. So I bought water, I bought these things. I was living in a tiny little room because I you know, could not afford anything bigger. And uh, and you sit there and you wait. You wait for what's happening. I mean, I have to say, before the war, you know, during the sanctions, I was, you know, I was watching my life seeping away from me. I could see um, life under the sanctions. I wanted to leave the country. I couldn't leave the country. And and it's just life of boredom, listening to this great dictator, thinking he's great. He's um, leading his people to death by boredom, basically, war after war, sanctions. And um, yeah, so we 
that was the life. Hmm. Well, today we are listening to what the last 20 years of war in Iraq have been like through Iraqi eyes. And that view is provided by Keith Abdul Ahad. He's an award-winning journalist and author. He's a staff writer for the British newspaper The Guardian. And he has a spectacular new book out. It's called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. And we'll have much more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash On Point today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're joined by Keith Abdul Ahad. He's an award-winning journalist and out with a new book called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. And he's providing us a much-needed view from the Iraqi perspective of 20 years of war in Iraq. Um, and Keith, earlier in the show, you had told us that uh, you were there in Firdos Square in Baghdad on the day that the, that giant statue of Saddam Hussein was toppled. Uh, that was April 9th, 2003. And um, here's how that moment was reported in the United States by CBS News. Just in the last few moments, a U.S. Marine tank with a large chain has pulled the statue of Saddam Hussein down. This giant statue crumbled at the knees and toppled over. It's still hanging from the pedestal, but as it collapsed, a great roar came up from the cloud. There it goes. It has fallen down to the ground. It has come apart. The crowd is, is, is going mad, rushing towards it. They've been pelting it with stones. Again, that's a CBS News report. Um, of course, the reporter was in Baghdad, but that's what American audiences saw. So, Keith, um, was there a great crowd? What, I mean, you were there. What did you see? I mean, she's very accurate in saying that the American tank pulled the statue because we often hear Iraqis toppled the statue of Saddam. Iraqis did not topple the statue, not because they didn't want to, but because, you know, they had a few hammers and, and it was taking a long time. And there were huge, the huge crowd actually were journalists. And I was standing there and there was a smaller crowd of Iraqis and the American pulled down the, the statue and... 
And yes, a few people, maybe a couple of dozen, kind of rushed there, and a few of them started pelting the statue with their shoes, with their flip-flops. But the ultimate thing, there was this moment when, as this American Marine was climbing on the ladder to put the noose around the statue's head, and he pulls this American flag from his pocket, and he placed it in front of, on top of the, the face of Saddam. And there was this kind of collective gasp, I think, amongst the journalists, oh, don't do it. This is destroying the, the kind of the image of liberation, of freedom. And, and I did the same thing at the time. And I was thinking, oh boy, just let this whole um, facade live for a few days more, uh, the facade of liberation. But, you know, later I came to believe that this Marine was more honest than all the politicians in New York, in Washington and London, because he saw the war as a, as a war between his men and the Iraqi army, and, and he came victorious. So it was his right to put the flag of his nation on the defeated statue of the dictator. And and that, that moment, the whole idea of Iraqi freedom, I think, collapsed, because it was an occupation. And it was an occupation that maybe the Iraqis, in a Faustian deal inside their hearts, said, okay, we'll tolerate yet another American occupation of Iraq, if the price is getting rid of Saddam and having a prosperous Iraq. But of course, they got rid of Saddam, but a horrible Iraq uh, came to existence mm. after that. Mm -hmm. Well, you described that also that moment as uh, coming so very quickly that uh, Baghdad itself had this this very short period of time where it hung in the balance, as, as you write, between uh, dictatorship and, and occupation. That that was a very striking way of, of putting it, Keith, I have to say. I mean, in, in that moment where all seemed possible, even though short as it was, how did you feel? What were your thoughts about what was possible for Iraq? Well, Magna, I mean... Before the Americans entered Baghdad, uh, the city, as I said, the city was empty. There's very few civilians ventured out of their houses. But in every street corner, you see these sandbags. The traffic police were wearing helmets. You see the Ba'ath Party militiamen standing in street corners, uh, military equipment uh, around the house, uh, around the houses and the streets and all these things. And then something happened between the 8th of April and the 9th, I woke up on the 9th and suddenly the streets were empty as if someone gave them an order and every single security officer, militiaman had disappeared from the street. So that is the sense of the quietness. The, the city is finally free from the grip of the dictatorship and its security forces. And that freedom lasted probably an hour, a couple of hours until you see the occupiers entering the city. And, and, and that is the... And of course, throughout the, the years after that, I'm always asked the question, so what was better, the Saddam or the, or the Americans? And as if Iraqis had no option but a mad dictator and an illegal occupation. I mean, we as people deserve something more. Mm, mm. Well, the sort of very binary thinking um, that uh, the United States and the, and the West had and perhaps even continues to have about the Iraqi people is a recurring theme, uh, you know, in, in your in your memoir. I mean, you write about how very quickly after you became a, um, a a translator for for Western journalists, that you always were were told to ask people that you were interviewing whether they're Sunni or Shia. 
that this was, a, and you cringed every time you had to ask that question. Can you tell me why? Because I grew up in a in a city, I don't want to dismiss the notions that uh, Sunnis and Shiites exist. Of course, they existed as a religious, cultural manifestation, schools of thought, whatever. But the reality is, social class. Um, regional distinctions were more important from the sectarian identity. Baghdad, the Baghdad I knew, did not have a sectarian identity. And when the journalists came, and of course the journalists, uh, the new American administration, the exiled Iraqi politicians that came with them, suddenly Iraq was devised as as uh, made out of three components, the Kurds, the Sunnis, and the Shia. And as if there was a divide separating the Sunnis of Baghdad from the Shia of Baghdad, this didn't exist. I mean, Sunnis and Shia both suffered in, in the in the sanctions. But the narrative that was brought to justify a, a invasion of Iraq was Saddam was this uh, supervillain, which he was, and he oppressed his people, which he did. But because Saddam was a Sunni, then by association, all the Sunnis are culprit in, in the crimes of Saddam, and they've been pushed to a corner with fingers pointing at them, accusing them of being collaborators, and and the Shia of be, being the victims. And that narrative based on victimhood, when when part of the populations are victim, the other are the victimizers. And that mm. were the seeds of the later civil war that was hap- that created uh, after the invasion were laid there in this uh, what we call it al-muhasas al um kind of sectarian division, the ethno-sectarian division of the state. But so, but more importantly, and, and you sort of tucked it in there. It sounds like what you're saying is that that um, the, the Americans had absolutely no understanding or no willingness to understand the other forms of connections that Baghdadis and Iraqis had with each other, uh, family, cultural, ethnic, tribal, and that, that it was only these religious, the religious sectarianism that was imposed as the most important way to define who was who I- in Iraq. Do, do you think that the Americans were willfully blind to the other realities of what constituted Iraqi civil and social life? Worse than willfully blind. They were not only blind, but they took the one narrative that was given to them, fed to them by the exiled Iraqi politicians like Ahmed Chalabi and the others. These uh, exiled politicians uh, grew up in the claustrophobic circles of, of exiles. Uh, they lost family members. They were uh, uh, you know, chased by the regime. So they grew up in Tehran, in Beirut, in London, within their tiny little communities. Those are the people who explained what was happening in Iraq to the Americans. And those people were not in Iraq, had never been in Iraq. Some of them left Iraq when they were children. Others grew up, you know, were born in the West. So when the Americans came, not only they were willfully blind, because if you're willfully blind and you learn on the ground, that's fine. You know, they came with these mis- misguided policies fed to them uh, by mm. the neocons, of course, and the Iraqi exiles. Mm. Well, I want to, uh, once again, hopefully try to bridge the the gap between what Americans saw in the United States um, over the course of the Iraq War and what Iraqis, and particularly you, experienced and, and lived, uh, Haith. And so here's another just iconic moment from May 1st of 2003. So we're still in 2003 here, uh, where President George W. Bush 
is standing in a flight suit on the deck of the uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Abraham Lincoln. And behind him is that famous banner declaring mission accomplished. And he told the cheering sailors uh, on the ship that major combat operations in Iraq have ended. And then President Bush repeated this promise to the Iraqi people. The transition from dictatorship to democracy will take time, but it is worth every effort. Our coalition will stay until our work is done. And then we will leave. And we will leave behind a free Iraq. Keith, when you heard that, what was going through your mind? How did you respond to it? I was thinking how delusional he was. I mean, he was declaring the end of major combat operations when more Americans, more American soldiers would die in the upcoming months and years than during the war. And I was thinking, how can you establish a democracy in a country that was bombed by the Americans, humiliated, put under sanctions, bombed again, and then told to come back with, with a democracy? And and of course, the democracy that we have elections in Iraq, but elections do not transform trans, uh, translate into democracy when you have political parties armed, um, you have massive corruption. So 20 years later, we still don't have that democracy that we were promised by the Americans. And I don't want to lay the blame on, on George W. Bush and the American soldiers only. I want to say that the process was so flawed and wrong that it it was inevitable for it to to fail and collapse and produce uh, the mayhem that it produced. Mm. Mm-hmm. However, certain things were not, shouldn't have happened. I mean, a sectarian civil war uh, was only only happened because of the politicians who came with, with the United States, the form of government the United States decided to implement in Iraq, but also the Americans' lack of security. They did not control the borders. So anyone who had a grievance against the Americans, uh, namely the jihadis who came from as far as Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, wanted to fight the Americans in Iraq, and ignite a civil war, but also mm. the Syrians and the Iranians who were on the list of uh, whatever axis of evil thought, why would we, why should we wait for the Americans to invade our country? Let's fight the Americans in Iraq. And suddenly Iraq became this arena for everyone who had a grievance against the Americans to, to come and fight the Americans. Yeah. You know, you write in the book, uh, To put a fine point on what you just said, in the book you say, quote, To be fair to Bush and the neocons, the occupation was bound to collapse and fail. Both logic and history tell us that. Because a nation can't be bombed, humiliated, and sanctioned, then bombed again, and then told to become a democracy. No amount of planning could have turned an illegal occupation into a liberation. And then you go on uh, even more um, pointedly uh, to say that really another victim uh, of the uh, the war in Iraq, the U.S. invasion, was the idea of democracy in the Middle East. As you say, unleashing a sectarian war that would engulf a region permanently crippled democracy in the Middle East because people would often ask, do you want democracy? Didn't you see what democracy did to Iraq? Now, I point that out um, as a very uh, quite... Uh, eye-opening moment in in your book, Haith, because uh, there were some people in the United States who were definitely cheerleaders of the war, um, who also 
were bold enough to say that, uh, you know, maybe democracy wasn't even ever the point. And for example, here is New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman um, on the uh, PBS show, uh, the public TV show, Charlie Rose. And here's, um, this is many years ago. This is how Friedman explained the invasion of Iraq. What they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house from Basra to Baghdad and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think we care uh, about our open society? Well, suck on this. Okay. That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia, could have hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. That's the real truth. Keith, you are an Iraqi. You are on the receiving end of that. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, look, Mark, I mean, exactly what, what he predicted happened. I mean, and the arrogance of this. I mean, ha, I mean, this is the arrogance of an, of an occupier throughout the history. This is the hubris of, you know, of, of, of an occupying army. But to come from Friedman, I mean, I can't believe it, he said. But also, you know what happens when you take a big stick and, and knock at every single door from Basra to Baghdad and you say, suck on this? People will resist you. And that is exactly what happened. Small acts of resistance, insurgency started in areas in, in Baghdad, in Najaf and Karbala. And of course, as the army know what the armies know best, which is to, you know, arrest people, detain them, put them in jail, suddenly from a tiny little cells of resistance into a massive insurgency engulfing the Americans in Iran. And this is exactly what happened. Yani how, sorry, how idiotic you can be to say things like that, as if you can coerce the will of a nation. Any person, I mean, imagine what happens in New York if, I don't know, Saudi, Pakistani, or Iraqi army start knocking at doors. Every man will, you know, start resisting. And this is what happened in Iraq. Not because they wanted to kill Americans because they saw this as an occupation. And and the worst of it all, the worst of it all, is that this, look, this is an occupation, look what they are doing to us, was used by the worst kind of ideologues, terrorists, gunmen, you name them. And the fighting the American became such a big label justifying every kind of criminality, kidnapping, killing, and violence in the streets of Baghdad. Because they say, look, this is an occupation army. And of course, the label of of occupation, uh, the Americans chose mm. that label themselves by... Well, can I just jump in here for a second? We have about 30 seconds before we have to take our next break. And I all of a sudden wonder, if you ever met Tom Friedman now, what would you tell him? Well, look what your what your amazing analysis about Iraq has led to, into a region, not only Iraq, but the whole region engulfed by a sectarian civil war. Hmm. Well, today we are talking with Heith uh, Abdul Ahad. His book is called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. And we'll talk more about uh, the civil wars that engulfed Iraq over the course of those 20 years when we come back. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're speaking with Khaith Abdul Ahad. He's an award-winning journalist and author, a staff writer for The Guardian, and he's written a tremendous new book. It's called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War. And we have an excerpt at it uh, of it Excuse me, at onpointradio.org. And um, I want to talk a little bit, uh, if we could, Khaith, about what you witnessed regarding how... Um, you know, the U.S. military operated on the ground in various places that you were in Iraq. And I heard you say earlier, and, and, and you're right to point this out, that you don't necessarily blame the military uh, itse- itself for um, much of what happened in Iraq. Simultaneously, though, some of what happened was, was quite um, devastating. For example, in 2010, WikiLeaks released a video of an American Apache helicopter hovering over a group of civilians on a Baghdad street. And this was, the video had actually been taken three years earlier. The Apache helicopter then opens fire and kills two Reuters employees and other uh, civilians who were there. One of them has a weapon. Roger received Oh, yeah. That's a weapon. Yeah. Light them all up. Come on, fire. Uh, I think we'll take them to a local hospital over. Oh, it's their fault for bringing their kids to a battle. That's right. So that was uh, 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 an incident that took place in 2007, released in 2010. But... Uh, Heath, you describe in the book something that happened to you in 2004, um, where very similar, you were on a on Haifa Street in Baghdad, uh, and in fact, uh, someone had bombed a, a piece of U.S. military equipment, and then a helicopter arrived. Can you tell us what happened to you on that day? So, Magna, two two tiny small helicopters uh, were <clears throat> came. Uh, people gathered around this burned American uh, vehicle after the attack. After the Americans were were evacuated, we arrived there. A group of journalists, and then we saw these helicopters. You know, fly right into the crowd and then fire rockets uh, into the middle of the crowd. And, and of course, I arrived and I see the scenes of mayhem, people losing limbs, eventually people dying in the middle of the street, bleeding to death. And the helicopters went back and forth and uh, and did two kind of runs firing into the crowd. And, and at that time, I mean, I can't describe the fear. It's just like you just want to be sucked into the middle of the ground and disappear. But they, those were civilians. They, those were civilians in the middle of the street. Yes, an armored vehicle was destroyed. But it was a group of civilians who had gathered around it. And, and, and of course, all these incidents, one after the other, culminating in the pictures of Abu Ghraib, the torture, you, you see this, uh, this army that was supposedly came there to liberate you as, again, and I repeat this word, as an army of occupation. 
most of them were young kids, 18, 19. I've never seen anything outside the United States. They're manning checkpoints. Um, this inherent racism that comes with, with you know, occupation armies dealing with, with local populations, um, the ignorance. And there was a kind of an undertone, which is expressed very well by Friedman earlier on, that this is a retaliation for September 11. But we did had nothing to do with September 11. Iraqis had nothing to do. I mean, I remember once in Baghdad, and we were all shocked at the events of September 11, and we denounced it as people. So why are we being treated like this by a supposed uh, liberator? This is one of the things that eventually that violence and the legacy of that violence continued and, 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 and man, you know, like a snowball, grew bigger and bigger and bigger until it engulfed the whole region. So the inherent racism, it's also, and then the, the humiliation then that um, uh, being the, the objects of that racism engendered in the Iraqi people, this is something that comes up again and again in your book. In fact, it's even in the opening, the introduction of the book where you, you sensed that same um, inherent racism even in some of the, the, the journalists that uh, first came into uh, Iraq along with the U.S. military, but be, having been embedded with them in the earliest days of the invasion. Can you tell us about that? I mean, Magda, I mean, we, look how the, you know, the very armed, very aggressive police is behaving in the United States itself. And this is in a people policing its own nation. So imagine how it happened in Iraq and imagine uh, the miscommunication, the aggressiveness, the way they talked to the Iraqis. I remember once we were stopped at a checkpoint, me and this other man who, who was a cleric, who had a long beard and a short, um, you know, dishdasha kind of a, a dress. And the soldiers were toying with him, kind of taking these kind of uh, uh, souvenir pictures and, and pointing the guns at his head and making, you know, monkey faces. And, and that was repeated ad nauseum at every single checkpoint in Iraq. It was horrible. It was horrible. You know, today, 2023, even the politicians who came on the back of uh, American tanks talk of the occupation and the horrors of the occupation. It's... Um, <clears throat> I can't emphasize how 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 bad it was. Hmm. Well, I mean, in the book you write that uh, the levels of fear, anxiety, and violence that Iraqis went through on a daily basis could not be measured or reported. That life was shaped by a cycle of violence and counterviolence, by sectarian politicians spewing hatred from pulpits and TV channels by the ugliness of the American occupation, by the racism of foreign soldiers and mercenaries, and of course, by the insurgency. So can you talk a little bit, I mean, what, we focused a lot, of course, on the actions, direct actions of, of Americans, but you also describe in the book in detail that the Iraqis were the targets of organized violence by uh, by insurgents, by uh, by other uh, by Ar other Arabs and, and Muslims, and this is part of the the reason why the death toll over the past twenty years for Iraqis is so high. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
I mean, of course. I mean, one thing I have to emphasize that the violence I saw as a journalist is so minimal compared to the violence that uh, civilian Iraqis uh, saw. So while I went out of my hotel to look at incidents of violence and I came back to my hotel, Iraqis went to schools, went shopping, uh, you know, had to go to work on a daily basis in street where, as you say, insurgents and militiamen were manning checkpoints, kidnapping people according to their name, uh, identity cards, and and the random violence of, uh, you know, of car bombs. So the violence that started as an insurgency against the Americans very quickly evolved into a sectarian civil war. So Sunni insurgents would attack Shia neighborhoods, Shia militiamen would retaliate by kidnapping Sunni men and killing them. And that soon became the reality of life in Baghdad. Uh, to to the, to a certain extent, even the Shia militias were working in tandem with the Iraqi security forces set up and equipped by, by the Americans. Because like all occupation forces, it's easier to divide the society into allies and enemies. And that civil war quickly moved from a sectarian civil war into a very profitable business model because while I can kidnap the, uh, those people from the other sect, I can also take their cars, their houses, their properties. I can negotiate a ransom from their families. And very soon, these insurgencies, militias fragmented into gangs controlling whole neighbors of Baghdad, mm-hmm. imposing their taxation on the population. Well, so one of the things that I appreciated uh, most profoundly in your book was the the stories of of many individual Iraqis who I'm sure we would have never heard of in the U.S. media. So, for example, can you tell us um, about Hamid of Tarmia? Well, Hamid was typical of those early insurgents, early, you know, if there was a moment where they could be called resistance. He was a security officer. He was working for Saddam's security. But like many in the official security forces, he was fed up with the president. So he tried to leave, couldn't. And at the eve of the war, he wasn't based in Basra, came back, had to pick up weapons and create a small cell fighting the Americans. But his violence was for a purpose, to reclaim a position for himself and for other people like him who were fired from the security forces by the Americans. They really wanted to get back, to get back the respect they lost and really wanted to reintegrate themselves into the Iraqi society. Very early on, he finds himself in a very awkward position because while he wanted to target the violence against the Americans, Fellow insurgents, especially the jihadis, al-Qaeda, and the others, wanted to expand that to include all the Shia. And he had a very clear, he was telling me this from 2005, he was saying al-Qaeda is very dangerous and it's very, you know, short-sighted, very stupid policies of the other Sunni insurgents to ally themselves with al-Qaeda. And of course, he was one of the people early on who was calling for, to talk to the Americans, because we need we need to have a peace deal with the Americans. We need to um, find a solution out of this kind of quagmire that we are in. And of course, eventually, this is what ended the first phase of the civil war when the Iraqi insurgents, the Sunnis themselves, defeated by the Shia militias in the civil war, turned to the Americans for aid and returned for, um, you know, fighting their former allies, the jihadis and al-Qaeda. And the first, yeah. and the civil war could have ended there. 
had we not had a very sectarian prime minister in 2010. Right. If I could just step in here, though, um, I mean, the, one of the things that is so revealing about uh, how you tell us Hamid's story, though, is that I understand what you mean by what his objectives were and his reasons for joining uh, an insurgency. But at the same time, I mean, there's this remarkable theme of, scene of him hosting um, foreign fighters in his home, right? Uh, and I'm hoping I'm not confusing stories here, but, uh, and, you know, feeding them rice and um, chicken and fruit. And, um, and, and basically the goal of those foreign fighters, though, was, was exclusively religious, that they were there to do religious jihad and to kill anyone who wasn't going to convert to, to Islam. So in a sense, their goals were actually different, but he was hosting them nevertheless. Well, Magna, this is a different commander. This is a commander in, in Fallujah, which is very similar circumstances. Ah, my apologies. Another, okay, I'm, no I'm so sorry. Yeah. And another commander who also wanted to fight the Americans for the purpose of fighting the Americans, but he found himself in a situation where, as you say, uh, foreign jihadis from Syria, from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia and Tunisia were all flocking to Fallujah. And again, from there, from that moment, you see this divergence in goals. While the Iraqi commander in Fallujah wanted to fight the Americans, the jihadis had no interest in Iraq itself. They were there to fight a global war. And that war um, was, you know, as outlined to them by bin Laden and others, is to defeat America. It's, it's almost like the Americans were fulfilling their ultimate dream, which is to fight the Americans. And here the Americans are here in Iraq, so everyone came to fight the Americans. So so this commander in Fallujah, who was also Iraqi, also realized this early on. And Hamid too. I mean, the last time I met Hamid, he was being chased by by the jihadis, the Sunnis, by the Shia militias, and 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 he was, you know, trying to escape in Baghdad and he disappeared and no one knows who who killed him or what happened to him. Mm, mm. Well, Look, there's there's insurgency, there's civil war, there's, I mean, you could pick any Iraqi city that was uh, severely impacted by all sorts of violence over the past 20 years, Fallujah, Mo- Mosul, etc. Um, but I want to actually spend the last several minutes here bringing us as close to the present day as possible, um, because we are talking about a 20-year span here. So in 2019, young Iraqis launched the Tishreen movement and these were peaceful protests against government corruption uh, and against the uh, influence of Iran. In the city of Hila, in the province of Babylon, considered the cradle of civilization, of course, protesters gathered, and one of the speakers addressed reporters who were covering the event in English. This is speech from the oldest civilization in the world, from Babylon. We love our country. We love life. So we made this peaceful demonstration. We need all the world to support us to stop crimes against innocent people. Faith, can you tell us why you thought it, thought it was important for us to, to talk about the Tishreen movement? Because in this whole sectarian narrative that in Iraq post-2003, Sunnis and Shia are fighting each other and killing each other, suddenly you have a movement led by a young generation. This is a generation that doesn't remember Saddam Hussein, a generation that grew up in the shadow of the civil war, suddenly realizing after the defeat of ISIS that, uh, you know, 
both Sunnis and Shia are not getting electricity. And why is that? Because we are ruled by a kleptocratic regime, because the, all the politicians uh, are involved in the civil war, but also in siphoning the wealth of the nation. And that was the moment this spark, you know, I've seen so much violence in Iraq and it almost doesn't affect me anymore. But that moment in Tishreen in 2009, when I see old women handing sandwiches to young demonstrators, you can't stop but, you know, tears pouring in my face because that was the ultimate moment when I thought the Iraqis kind of, they regained some, uh, they regained their narrative, regained some dignity, mm. avenged that violence of the civil war by peacefully yeah. protesting again. And that was a very important, I mean, Tishreen as a protest failed because all protests fail, but it established this benchmark for the rest of the people to point at and say, look at that moment, we were united. There were no Sunnis and Shia, there were no wealthy and poor. Everyone came together in that square. And that is that is the moment when a new Iraqi, I don't want to say nationalism, but patriotism had been emerging or a new Iraqi identity. Can it persist? Can it can it thrive? It can, but it's facing severe challenges from this established political parties and and the huge amount of wealth that, that they're stealing from, from Iraq. Mm. Well, I just feel like we've just begun this conversation, Gaith, but I have to, unfortunately, wrap it up. Gaith Abdullah Had, his book is called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East Long War, and I highly recommend that you read it. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.